And if you have a Bible, I invite you to turn with me in your Bibles to the book of Ecclesiastes chapter 5, or Old Testament scripture reading. Here we find that the great preacher in his wisdom under inspiration of the Spirit speaks of the very same things uh, that we heard in our various uh, readings from the law this morning. Uh, Just to emphasize that both the law, the prophets, the wisdom, and even the New Testament attest to the same thing regarding the truthfulness by which we ought to speak. Ecclesiastes chapter 5, verses 1 to 7. Guard your steps when you go to the house of God. To draw near to listen is better than to offer the sacrifice of fools. For they do not know what they are doing, that they are doing evil. Be not rash with your mouth, nor let your heart be hasty to utter a word before God. For God is in heaven, and you are on earth. Therefore, let your words be few. For a dream comes with much business, and a fool's voice with many words. When you vow a vow to God, do not delay paying it, for he has no pleasure in fools. Pay what you vow. It is better that you should not vow than that you should vow and not pay. Let not your mouth lead you into sin. Do not say before the messenger that it was a mistake. Why should God be angry at your voice and destroy the work of your hands? For when dreams increase and words grow many, there is vanity. But God is the one you must fear. Now turning with me to the Gospel of Matthew chapter 5. We continue making our way through the Sermon on the Mount. Our Savior here addresses the matter of lawful oaths. Matthew chapter 5, verses 33 to 37. Again, you have heard that it was said to those of old, you shall not swear falsely, but shall perform to the Lord what you have sworn. But I say to you, do not take an oath at all, either by heaven, for it is the throne of God, or by the earth, for it is his footstool, or by Jerusalem, for it is the city of the great king. Do not take an oath by your head, for you cannot make one hair white or black. Let what you say be simply yes or no. Anything more than this comes from evil. Let's pray and ask that the Lord would help us to understand what it is that he's teaching us. Our gracious God and Father, uh, as uh, your Savior has spoken and continues to speak here through the ministry of the Word, we pray that you would give us ears to hear and a heart that is zealous to believe all uh, that you have spoken and to do all that you have commanded. We confess we are not able to do these things apart from the work of the Spirit, and so we ask that your Holy Spirit would be at work in our hearts this morning, that we might understand and do. We ask these things in Christ's name. Amen. I think we've all been in a similar situation, or at least witnessed a situation where uh, as kids standing on the playground in school, uh, you imagine the situation where it is the last day of elementary school, the next year everybody's going to be going off to junior high to the new school. And as these two children are contemplating the future, there's the uncertainties that arise as regards to the status of their friendship. As you recall, for those of you who perhaps may have gone to public school as a kid, 
and you go to junior high, and it's a conglomeration of several elementary schools, which means there's going to be new people, new friends, and it raises those uncertainties. Are our, our, our friendships going to remain the same? And you can imagine two kids standing on the playground the last day of school, asking uh, one asking the other, will we remain friends forever? And the other says, certainly, of course we will. And says, do you swear? And the other kid says to the other, of course I swear. And in a moment of hushed, solemnity one child says to the other yes but do you pinky swear he says yes i pinky swear we all know what a pinky swear is it, it's uh, among children there's no higher oath that can be given than that of the pinky swear uh, the pinky promise every child knows that this is a pact that is made that to renege on such a promise entails certain doom as the old poem goes you make a pinky promise you keep it all your life, you break a pinky promise, I throw you on the ice. The cold will kill the pinky that once betrayed the friend. The frost will freeze your tongue off so that you never lie again. Pinky swears are solemn. It is unalterable and unchangeable, so long as you don't have your fingers crossed behind your back. We're familiar with that trick too, aren't we, as kids? Because everyone knows that you're not going to be held accountable so long as you have your fingers crossed behind your back. It's interesting how we have all these kind of childhood rules that everybody happens to know, uh, and nobody happens to ever have a, a to, to be taught them. It just seems to come naturally. And we laugh, we think it's childish. I think Jesus here is addressing this matter that is true not just for children, but for adults as well. And this is serious a matter that is compounded all the more in its seriousness because we find that grown-ups practice the same thing all the time. How many legal disputes arise because one party has contractually promised to do something and yet they've finagled their way around some form of legal loophole, the grown-up version of crossing your fingers. And they say, oh, I'm not obligated to do this. We see this morning our Savior addresses the matter of the third commandment. You shall not bear the name of the Lord lightly. You shall not bear it in vain. And that includes the matter of oaths and vows. So I'd like us to consider two things this morning. I'd like us first to consider the matter of duplicity. We see here in verse 33. And secondly, I'd like us to consider the matter of sincerity in verses 34 to 37. So the matters of duplicity and sincerity. Well, we see now for the fourth time, our Savior continues to contrast the religious culture of his day against the spotlight of God's moral law as it was given through the prophet Moses. And over and over again, Jesus keeps highlighting how the religious leaders of his day had failed to grasp the real righteousness that God's law really requires. And so Jesus says here once again, you have heard it said to our forefathers, you shall not swear falsely, but you shall perform to the Lord what you have sworn. We find here that this particular quote is not so much an exact quote uh, from the Old Testament, but rather an amalgamation, a culmination of several passages that we've already had read this morning from the Old Testament, such as Leviticus 19, Numbers chapter 30, and Deuteronomy 23. I think when we begin to look at these passages, you realize, and hopefully you have seen this even in our confession of faith, the Bible does not forbid making vows or oaths to the Lord. 
In fact, they are greatly encouraged so long as you understand a few things. The first, of course, is this, that those vows that are made to the Lord are, of course, voluntary, not obligatory. These are those free will votive vows. Even Solomon, as we heard a few moments ago, reflecting on the law of Moses, says says it well. When you vow a vow to God, do not delay in paying it, for he has no pleasure in fools, and it is better that you should not vow than that you should vow and not pay. In other words, nobody's forcing you to make whatever vow you are making to the Lord or whatever oath you are making, but if you do it, recognize this, that it will be required of you. And so it leads us to ask on first glance, what is it that Jesus is condemning here? Is he condemning oath-taking altogether? Well, in a word, no. Jesus is not condemning oath-taking. Notice the qualifications when he says, you shall not swear at all. By what? By heaven, earth, Jerusalem. What we see in the Old Testament is uh, those same things. You are not to swear by anything other than the name of the Lord. And yet we see that in Jesus' own day, uh, those around him were swearing by things other than the name of God himself. And I think for a particular reason. Uh, But before we get ahead of ourselves, we have to recognize that Jesus himself, even Paul themselves, will swear oaths in their own ministry. Uh, In Matthew chapter 23, when Jesus is put on trial, uh, the high priest and those who have put him on trial charge him under solemn oath to testify as to whether he is the promised Messiah. And as he is put under oath, and charged under oath, he responds simply, you said it. He answers solemnly and in the affirmative that he is, in fact, the promised Messiah. You consider Paul, who on a number of occasions will call upon God as his witness that he is, in fact, speaking truthfully, most notably 2 Corinthians chapter 1. As we recall when we went through uh, 2 Corinthians last year, there are a number of whispers and all this militia gossip that was permeating the church saying that Paul was either double-minded, in other words, unstable in his ways, he couldn't make up his mind which way to go, whether he was going to come visit Corinth or go elsewhere, and then others were saying that he spoke with a forked tongue, that he spoke uh, one thing out one side of his mouth and one thing out the other, and Paul has to say, as God is my witness, this is not the case. I call God as witness that I am speaking to you the truth in simplicity and sincerity. And so we see that there are oaths that are actually made. And so it is not the matter of oath-taking that is being forbidden. I, I say this because there are certain church uh, traditions, there are certain denominations that, that say that, that Jesus here is forbidding the, the taking of all oaths or vows, and that's not what's going on. Again, notice the qualification Jesus is not saying um, you shall take no oaths. He says you shall not swear by heaven, earth, Jerusalem, even the hair on your head, which we'll get at some of that uh, in the coming moments. But again, we have to recognize the Old Testament does not forbid solemn oaths made to the Lord. So we have to ask, what is it that Jesus is contrasting here? Because he, he continues that contrast in saying, you have heard it was said, but I say to you. So what is it that Jesus is getting at? What is the main issue at play? Well, the key phrase, I think, comes here in verse 33. 
where Jesus is citing those who have tried to summarize the Old Testament teaching by saying, uh, you shall make your oaths uh, to the Lord. And of course, on the surface, that sounds orthodox. And it is. It's exactly what the Old Testament says. You shall make your vows to the Lord. But here's the rub. In Jesus' own day, among the rabbis, there was a big debate going on over the matter of lawful oaths and vows. And the question hinged on this. Which vows can you get away with breaking? Which vows or oaths can you make that if you break, you will not suffer a type of penalty? And which oaths and vows will you make that if you break them, you will have to suffer the consequences? Well, the debate boiled down to this sentiment. Well, if you made a vow to the Lord, certainly the law says you must keep it. But here comes the loophole. If you swear by anything else, then if you break your bow, that vow, it's not a big deal. So what do you see a lot of people doing? Whether, rather than swearing a solemn oath to the Lord, they'll go, well, I swear by heaven. I swear by earth. I swear by the hair on my head, right? On my mother's grave, as we hear so many people even invoke today. Here we find a sort of rabbinical loophole, a grown-up religious version of crossing your fingers behind your back. If you don't swear by God's name then it doesn't count. That is what's going on here. Hopefully by now you see that there's this trend that, that's slowly emerging, this underlying issue that Jesus is having to address over and over and over again. That the religious leadership of the day has failed to see how extensive God's righteousness is. And therefore how extensive the requirements of God's righteousness is. And as we've seen in previous weeks, when the law says do not murder, they say, well, that doesn't count anything that's said with a malicious heart. It only counts to the act of murder. When the law says you shall not commit adultery, those in Jesus' day were saying, well, it's just the physical act of adultery that's being condemned. When the law condemns divorce, they quibble and they say, well, as long as it was nobody's fault, then live and let live. In other words, what Jesus is condemning is a view of the law that is too superficial. Where in their interpretation, they have distorted the original intent of God's law. Where they have, not, where they have turned the law into something from how does the law direct us in how we are to fulfill our responsibilities and obligations? And they have now twisted the law into, what can I get away with? Two very different approaches to the law. That's why Jesus has come to say, I've not come to do that. I've not come to create a legal loophole. I've not come to uh, retract the law. I've not come to abolish it or repeal it. I've rather come to fulfill the law. And so you need to know the moral obligations of what God's righteous requirements are. You need to know what it means truly to love your neighbor as yourself. And so perhaps the first question you should stop asking is, what can I get away with? Because that seems to be the underlying principle at play here that seems to distort every misappropriation of the law so far that Jesus is condemning. You want to enter the kingdom of God, well, there is a higher standard of righteousness, higher than what these religious nitpickers of the day are bandying about. 
You use the law to mask your duplicity. But what the law really requires is simplicity and sincerity, even in our words and in our speech. And so very clearly, when we look at the matter of sincerity, here in verses 34 to 37, our Savior outlines the things that we ought to do and the things that we ought not to do. And in verses 34 to 36, He begins with a prohibition. These are the things that you should not do when it comes to oaths. Again, as the Old Testament has already said, make your vows to the Lord, don't swear by these lesser things. We have to ask ourselves, why are you swearing by those lesser things? Heaven doesn't belong to you. That's what Jesus is saying. Don't swear by heaven. It's it's God's throne. Who are you to swear by that? The earth isn't yours as well. Why are you invoking the earth in part of your oaths and vow? The earth is God's footstool. It belongs to Him. Jerusalem is the king's city. It is not yours. Why are you swearing by that? Perhaps the most pious vow that we see that Jesus condemns are those that would entail swearing by their own head. And yet Jesus says here and elsewhere, you can't make yourself taller or shorter. You can't, at the the, the wave of the hand, make your hair any less gray. You don't have power or control over your own life, so who are you to swear by your own self? I think what we find here is something like a, a modern equivalent where when a parent says to a kid, uh, do, not, do not say X cuss word, and then the kid turns around and they don't say that cuss word, but they make up something that sounds really similar to it. I could use examples, but I don't want to give ideas, especially if you're training your kids, don't say X cuss word or substitutes to it. I don't want to say it from the pulpit. But everybody knows exactly what I'm doing. This seems to be the equivalent of what's going on here. And what's every parent's response if if a kid uh, says something? If you say, don't say the the fill-in-the-blank word, and they give some type of substitute word that sounds very similar, and you say, I told you not to say it, and they say, well, I didn't do that, what does the parent say? You know what I meant. That's what we have going on here. Our Lord brings this matter up again towards the end of Matthew's Gospel when He castigates the Pharisees for this very thing. This is Matthew chapter 23. Listen to what Jesus says. As He pronounced as the consummate prophet a declaration of woe upon the religious leadership. He says, Woe to you blind guides who say, whoever swears by the temple, that's nothing. But whoever swears by the gold of the temple is obligated. You see this kind of splitting of hairs? They say, you can't swear by the temple, that's holy. But if you swear by the gold on the temple, then you're obligated. These ways to try to finagle your way to find these types of loopholes. He says, you fools and blind men, what is more important? Is it the gold or is it the temple that sanctifies the gold? In other words, they're saying, I think I said, yeah, anyways, don't swear, Jesus is saying don't swear by either the, the temple or the gold on the temple. Whoever swears by the altar, the, the blind guides of Jesus, say, of Jesus say, they go, ah, it's no big deal. Ah, that's nothing. Jesus, but whoever swears by the offering on it, or, or not Jesus, the, the Pharisees will say, whoever swears by the offering on it, he is obligated. Again, this splitting of hairs. Jesus says, well, you're a bunch of blind men. 
which is more important, the offering or the altar that sanctifies the offering. Therefore, whoever swears by the altar swears both by the altar and everything on it. And whoever swears by the temple swears both by the temple and him who dwells within it. And whoever swears by heaven swears both by the throne of God and by him who sits upon it. In other words, just because you're saying, well, I'm swearing by heaven, I didn't say I swore by God's name. Jesus' whole point is, no, you're still responsible for what you're saying. You think you've created some type of loophole where you, you could become the great promise breaker and get away with it, with impunity. Jesus says, no, you will still be held accountable for the promises and oaths that you have made. You think these Again, first century attempts at having your fingers crossed when you make your vows will get you out of trouble, but they will not stop fooling yourselves. Do not think that by swearing by creation rather than the Creator that you have found an exit strategy, that you are now somehow exempt uh, from fulfilling the promise that you have voluntarily made yourself. In other words, Jesus is saying, do not treat your oaths that you have made as if they were not oaths. If you're doing that, why are you even, why are you even making these vows? Why are you even making these oaths? What it really does is it points to a really evil and wicked heart. You have to ask yourselves, why are you willingly making these oaths, but giving them in such a way that you feel like you can default back uh, just in case you decide to change your mind? It really shows how duplicitous your heart really is. And what Jesus is saying here is, in fact, you ought not only treat your oaths with solemnity, you must treat everything you say with utmost seriousness. It leads to the second matter that Jesus brings up in this passage, not just what you should not do, verses 34 to 36, but also positively what you should do, your obligation seen in verse 37. What should we do then when it comes to our speech? When should we speak the truth? Jesus' answer is very simple. Always. Stop looking for loopholes. and Stop looking for ways to go back on your word do you know somebody who feels like they always have to follow up with any type of assertion by saying something to the effect of, like, I swear on my mother's grave? Uh, they, they give these kind of outlandish statements. And they, they give them so often and so much where you go, I, yeah, I think you're protesting a little too much. And the, the very fact that you feel like you have to follow up certain statements repeatedly saying, I, I promise you I'm telling the truth, gives the hint and insinuation that maybe you're not always telling the truth. They go, well, I promise I'm telling the truth now. Jesus' whole point is we should just tell the truth at all times. Let your yes be yes. Let your no be no. Simply let it be. If you're a man who is always true to your word, and people know that, then you can simply say, yes, I will do that. No, I will not do that. Or... Let me think about that. As we, those of us who bear God's name in, uh, on our lives in our baptism, I mean, that's the thing with baptism. We are baptized into the name of Father, Son, and Spirit. So if you are a baptized Christian, you are the bearer of God's name. And the third commandment prohibits you from treating that particular facet of your life, which encapsulates the whole of your life, 
You're forbidden from treating that lightly. You're not to bear God's name vainly. You're not to treat it lightly. We are called to lives of sincerity and simplicity in the things that we do and say. Simply put, we are to speak the truth at all times so that nobody would have to worry whether you are lying or not. You see, what Jesus is doing, he's redirecting the argument from the question of how can I get away with certain oaths that I have made? And he redirects it not just to the matter of oaths, but to everything we say. That when you speak, simply let your yes be yes and your no be no. If you have to back up your statements with anything more, it really seems to evidence something of a duplicitous heart. You see, here we find the kind of righteousness that God requires. That we are to be men and women of such integrity that we do not have to back up our words with solemn oaths. Although if we have to stand in court one day, either in the civil courts or the church courts, and we are called to give a solemn oath, we are perfectly allowed to make our oaths to the Lord. That in His presence we are in fact speaking the truth. But the fact is, is that we should be truth-tellers, not just in those moments, but in all of our lives. That we should be men and women of such conviction that we will never twist the law to find a way out of doing our duties. But rather we use God's law, not as the basis of our right standing with God, but we use it as that schoolmaster, that teacher that instructs us and what it looks like to keep our duties. What does it really look like to love the Lord with our heart, soul, mind, and strength? What does it look like to love our neighbors as ourselves? As Jesus and Paul and James will reiterate in the New Testament, the law of God is fulfilled in this, you shall love your neighbor as yourself. The law is intended to teach us what true love really looks like to those around us. And that regards the things that we say, the promises that we make. There's a TV show that I enjoy watching that's out, and a repeated phrase that's said among these uh, middle school students is this, friends don't lie. That's absolutely what Jesus is getting at here. We are called to be truth tellers, not truth breakers. Because the reality is that on the last day, we will have to give an account for everything we say, whether those things have been vowed or not, whether those things have been said in public or in private. And yet as we consider our speech, I do think this reveals yet another feature of our own sinful hearts. You see, we are so fickle when it comes to keeping our promises. How easy it is to find ourselves looking for a way out that we do not have to keep our vows. You read Joshua chapter 9. The Gibeonites, as the Lord had called Israel to put to death all the Canaanites in the land for their idolatry and immorality. And there's a group of Canaanites known as the Gibeonites who recognize that they will surely die unless they deceive uh, the Israelites. And so they pretend to be foreigners who have just kind of migrated into the territory. And they, they ask for Joshua and for Israel to vow an oath to them uh, that they would be protected by the Israelites. And of course, 
the Israelites make a rash vow without consulting the Lord, and then it turns out that the Gibeonites are their next-door neighbors, and they're not the nicest neighbors. But guess what? The Israelites have already made a vow, and they're not allowed to break this vow that they have made rashly as it is and as much as it comes to hurt them. We must treat our oaths seriously. And yet how many of us look at our own hearts and see how easy it is that we, how willing we are to break our own promises and somehow impute that same type of personality to God Himself. I mean, isn't that the great problem as uh, so many struggle with a sense of assurance? Well, I know that God will keep His promises to everybody else, but not to me. He's going to look at my life and say, ah, you know what, never mind. Let, let, me, let me find that loophole. Let me back out of my promise to abundantly pardon and forgive you. How many of us say that the promises of God are true for everyone else, but not for me? As we look at our own sin and say, you do not know how sinful I am. You don't know the types of temptation that I undergo. Now the Lord will surely back out of His promise. Surely I am doomed. So we might flinch when we hear of the kind of righteousness that God requires here because this is a righteousness that exceeds that of the Pharisees as the Lord requires us to tell the truth at all times. But we must remember that this righteousness is itself the righteousness of God. This is a reflection of God's own character. And God is telling us here through His Son that this is a God who does not lie. God is more righteous than the Pharisees, is He he not? Though the religious hypocrites of Jesus' day were trying to find ways of getting out of keeping their promises, God is not like them. God is not like us. God is more righteous than you. God is more righteous than me. Strictly speaking, we would not simply say that God is righteous. God is righteousness itself. God is the embodiment of what true righteousness really is. And when it comes to O's, God is one who not only will not break His promises, Hebrews chapter 6 says He is one who is unable to break the promises He has freely made. See, Jesus here is telling something, something to us of the character of God. Man may lie, God does not. Man may break his oaths, God never will. We might try to wiggle out of our promises and obligations, but once God promises, though he is not constrained to make any promise, any promise that he does willingly give is a promise that he will never default on. As James 1 tells us, there is no shadow of turning in him. In other words, there's not a, there's not a hint of deception in the character of God. Here is one who has not come to throw the wool over your eyes. Here is not one who, who, uh, who has come to pull the rug out from under your feet. Scripture tells us, in fact, in the book of Numbers, God is not a man that He should lie, nor the Son of Man that He should change His mind. God has said it. Will He not do what He has promised? God has spoken. Will He not certainly fulfill it? This is the great great news of the Gospel. God is not like us. It is, in fact, impossible for God to lie. 
And so that he might confirm to us the unbreakable and unchangeable character of his promise, he has sworn not by heaven, not by earth, but he has sworn by that which there is none greater. He has sworn by himself. He has exalted his word above his name that we would have a strong confidence to flee to him for mercy and for grace that when we come to the Lord and we cling to his promises, we should have the confidence to know that he is not one who is looking to back out of the very things that he said that he would do. And he has promised this, that he will save to the uttermost those who turn to his son in repentance and faith. Like an anchor for the soul, Hebrews says, the anchor is cast not into the depths of the sea, but is cast upward into heaven, behind the veil into the holy of holies. To the inner sanctum in heaven that we might have that steadfast confidence of God's mercy given to us in the Lord Jesus Christ, who ever reigns above, even right now, as our great prophet, priest, and king. Christ who has promised never to leave us nor forsake us. Christ who has promised that there is nothing in heaven or on earth that would separate us from the love of God. Christ who has demonstrated His promise by giving us His Spirit as the guarantee of our redemption. God is not like us. For His righteousness courses deeper. It pulses faster. It runs more richly than our measly, fragile, self-righteous egos ever could. God is not like us. But here He does call us to be like Him. To imitate Him as citizens of heaven in the things that we say and the things that we promise. That the vows we make, we are vowing in the face of God Himself. And because of that, we will be held to account. And so we should take our vows and our oaths seriously, but not just our vows and oaths. We should treat all of our speech with utmost sincerity. Because He has given us a Spirit who is enabling us to walk in righteousness, to bear His name with a gravitas that His name deserves, that we might speak the truth with sincerity and love, and so honor our vows that we have made before God and to one another. Be it in fulfilling our marriage vows, or speaking honestly on the playground, or maintaining our contractual business obligations even to our own detriment, or even fulfilling our contracted terms of service as employees. We are called to keep our promises. Here our Savior calls us to imitate Him in the path of His righteousness, as He gives us now the great opportunity to walk in His ways and imitate the one who does not and cannot ever lie. Let us pray. Our gracious God and Heavenly Father, we do thank You for Your Word, and we pray that You would teach us uh, to speak with simplicity and sincerity in all the things that we do and say. We ask these things in Christ's name. Amen.